Since the aim of our coming together at this conference is to discuss ways of interpreting the results of, or integrating the results of contemporary science into a mature and theologically informed faith, my purpose this morning is to provide an overview of the metaphysical and epistemological issues involved in such an integration project. Since there's a vast set of issues indeed, my strategy will be to go over them in a narrative form. <clears throat> Among the followers of Thomas Aquinas in philosophy and theology, the narrative is well underway and it's a long one. I cannot tell the novel length version of the story this morning, um, but I can tell a short story. For Thomists who are here present, the story I'm going to tell this morning is one we're accustomed to telling each other uh, to the point of being tiresome. But to those here present who are unfamiliar with how Thomists commonly read and diagnose our contemporary situation, this short story may come as something new and hopefully illuminating and point out several ways forward in the task of integrating the results of science into a theologically informed faith. So I'm going to proceed in three parts. In the first part, I will lay out Aristotle's philosophy of nature and the metaphysical picture it gives us, what I call the world of form and finality. And I'll look at some of its ethical and theological implications. In the second part, I'll look at the mechanistic, reductionistic materialism that displaced Aristotle's philosophy of nature and the metaphysical picture such materialism gives us, what I call the world of power and control and uh, some of its ethical and theological implications. And then finally, I'll propose a way out to integrate the results of science into a theologically informed faith, what I call the hermeneutics of wisdom and love. So first, the world of form and finality. So in this part, I'm going to lay out what I call the metaphysics of form and finality and some of its ethical and theological implications. In the world of form and finality, there's a basis in nature for moral claims. Human beings have a shared capacity to know that basis, and so a common ground for shared moral evaluations and moral agreement, even between Christian believers and unbelievers. The world of form and finality coheres well with divine revelation given in Scripture, and it offers an apt instrument for the interpretation of Scripture. And Scripture, in turn, brings to light that the world of form and finality known to philosophers is even more splendid than philosophers can say. It is the world of divine wisdom and love, and in the last analysis, the world of communion with the Holy Trinity. So let us begin with Aristotle, even though Later, I'll say that the world of form and finality is not simply Aristotle's theory. That's an important point. It's not just one perspective among others. It purports to give us timeless principles. Rather, Aristotle gives us this set of timeless principles that are accessible to human reason as such. Now, it has been said that human beings think in terms of world metaphors, if there's a world metaphor for Aristotle, the metaphor is an animal. In one place, he even says, the universe is an animal. But that's a hard saying and difficult for us to understand. 
it suffices for our purposes to say that for Aristotle, the world is a lot like an animal. It is an organic order. In an organic order, each part has a purpose or function to play in the whole, and the function it has to play in the whole requires it to be made of certain parts arranged in a certain form. In human beings, for example, the eyes are for seeing, the ears are for hearing, the intestines are for digesting, the will is for loving what is good, and the intellect is for knowing what is true. Each of these parts is what it is. It has the form or constitutive order that it does for the sake of its specific purpose or function within the whole. The eye has lenses, pupils, cones, retina, and optic nerves arranged in the order typical of an eyeball so that it will see. Likewise, in the universe as a whole, everything of nature has a purpose, goal, or end. It's telos. Everything also has a substantial form or a constitutive order that makes it to be what it is and is for the sake of achieving its end or telos. Sometimes the end is simply to carry out the activity proper to things of its kind. The telos of a bald eagle, for example, might well be just to soar through the sky in the way that only bald eagles can do. Sometimes the end of the thing is to achieve some further end in nature by virtue of those proper activities, or those activities proper to things of its kind. The telos of insects might well be to eat up various particles so that the world is not immersed in sludge. Insects are nature's sanitation engineers. Sometimes the end of a thing is just its activity. Sometimes it is a further thing beyond its activity. And most often it seems to be some complex combination of both involved in an optimal life of things of its kind. The matter and form composition of bald eagles and insects are just right for carrying out their proper activities and accomplishing their purposes, at least within their ordinary habitat or milieu. And likewise with all other things of nature. Against those ancient philosophers who maintained that what happens in nature is merely by atomic, atomic combination or by chance or both, Aristotle argued vigorously and at length that atoms do not exist. Chance belongs to the order of accidental being. Or we might say today that chance merely supervenes on the underlying causal order of what is really real. And what is really real, what is at the bottom of the world, is whole substances or entities, the ones we experience around us in ordinary life, like the trees or a cat. And each has its nature or substantial form and its final cause or its end or telos. We live in a world of form and finality. It is remarkable that a pagan philosopher who knew nothing of sacred scripture would insist on rational grounds alone and against much opposition even in his own time that the world is thoroughly and throughout a world of form and finality. And Thomists have long considered Aristotle himself a piece of evidence that human beings are capable of at least some eternal truth without learning it from divine revelation given in scripture.
In a world of form and finality, the natures of things and their ends determine the criterion of what is good or evil, right or wrong. The correlation between the forms of things and the final ends of things provides a basis in the natures of things for evaluation of how good or bad they are. The criterion is simple. Each thing is good to the degree that it lives up to or actually realizes the end for things of its kind. A bald eagle is good to the degree it actually soars through the sky in the way that only bald eagles can do. And if a bald eagle were to remain slumped over in its nest without ever soaring, we would rightly say, something is wrong with it. It must be sick or something. Apple trees are good to the extent that they actually produce those juicy, delicious apples. And if an apple tree never did so, we would rightly say something is wrong. Maybe the soil is no good, or it is infested or something. One important point to make is that things are good or bad, precisely insofar as they are or are not living up to realizing those activities or ends proper to their kinds. Goodness or badness is a factual affair, in the sense that goodness or badness is of their very being. Goodness is the fulfillment of a thing's being, or its proper operations and ends. And badness is the privation, or lack, of a thing's being, or its proper operations and ends. Goodness and evil are nothing other than that. So it is with human beings. Human beings, too, have their proper operations, and that is to live according to reason. Now, depending on how one reads Aristotle here, to live according to reason means either living from out of stable dispositions for well-moderated behavior in the social affairs of the city, or it means withdrawing from the political affairs of life in the city to devote oneself predominantly to the contemplation of the truth for its own sake, together with a few friends in a community of rational dialogue, like a philosophical commune. In either case, it is possible to evaluate human beings accordingly and judge based on who, and judge one, judge a person based on who actually lives up to the goal of human nature. One can judge who is good and to what degree. If someone, in fact, lives from out of stable dispositions to act according to the mean between extremes in various matters, then he or she is a good human being. Otherwise, no, or not so much. Included within the stable dispositions is one in particular, prudence, which knows the mean between the extremes in various matters. The prudent person, in in particular, in a particular way, is the good person. And between prudent people, at least, we can expect a lot of agreement on what is the right way for human beings to live. On this view, it is possible for there to be shared moral evaluation and moral agreement, to some extent, about some things, even between believers and pagans. The 147 sayings of the seven sages of Delphi, for example, here are some of the sayings, practice justice, respect your parents, 
The first one actually is, follow God. These kinds of sayings, well, uh, Christians can agree. And as St. Paul says, when Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them. The 140 sayings of the seven sages of Delphi would be an example of the pagans who have not the law, nonetheless knowing what the law is in another way it's written on their hearts. The law of right conduct is written into the world of form and finality, and even pagans can see some of that law without turning to divine revelation given in Scripture. For this reason, haunted consciences are found everywhere and at all times beyond the circle of those who hear the gospel. And what even pagans can see coincides no small bit with the law of God given in Scripture. One and the same God expresses his law and our purpose in two ways, the book of nature and the book of Scripture. Aristotle's philosophy of nature coheres deeply with what we learn from divine revelation given in Scripture. Divine revelation given in Scripture tells us in many places that God created things with forms and final causes. Genesis chapter 1, verse 21. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, it says. And every winged bird according to its kind. Psalm 104, verses 14 to 15. You make the grass grow for the cattle. It seems to be teleology there. For the cattle. The grass is for the cattle. And plants for people's work. And bread to sustain the human heart. And wine to gladden their hearts. There seems to be final causality written into that passage or it's revealing final causality to us. It seems evident enough that these few kinds of things are symbols for everything God has made. And although the canonicity of the Book of Wisdom is a point in dispute between Catholics and Protestants, it contains one very clear statement on the matter. You, however, have ordered all things according to measure, weight, and number. And when the fathers of the church comment on that passage, they tell us it refers to the forms, the species, and kinds of things. The fathers saw in this verse an affirmation of the world of form and finality as God's creation. But although Aristotle's philosophy of form and finality and divine revelation given in Scripture cohere well on the question, they are at least consistent with each other. There's a question of interpretive strategy. Do we interpret the scriptures in light of the metaphysics of form and finality or the metaphysics of form and finality in light of the scriptures? This, you could say, is a sharply disputed question between Thomists and Bardians. The answer is both, but in a well-ordered way. Thomas Aquinas writes, the teaching of the philosophers is not to be used as though it held first place in such a way that the truth of faith should be believed because of it. But this does not prevent teachers of sacred doctrine from being able to use it in a secondary role 
That's a quote from St. Thomas. With 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19 in mind, Aquinas explains that this is how teachers of Christian doctrine destroy the wisdom of the wise. Teachers of Christian doctrine destroy the wisdom of the wise by sifting through pagan philosophy, setting aside its errors on either scriptural or philosophical grounds, or both, and then take whatever truth is found in philosophy and use it for the interpretation of scripture. What results is a unified wisdom proceeding from one and the same eternal truth, namely God, who manifests himself both in the book of nature and the book of scripture. When we read scripture in light of the metaphysics of form and finality, we can hear God telling us that he has given us a world of form and finality. Furthermore, we can use the metaphysics of form and finality to spell out in great detail the meaning of various doctrines given in scripture. For example, divine providence. This is the interpretive strategy of Thomas Aquinas, who takes up the question of providence in the Summa Contra Gentiles, book three. Divine providence is God's pre-understanding of the order of all things to their proximate ends, according to their kinds, and of particular things, according to their particular ends, according to the unfathomable, unfathomable designs of God to lead all things to their ultimate purpose. So he uses the teleological thinking of Aristotle to unpack the mystery of God's providence or to spell out what that mystery consists of. And when we read the metaphysics of form and finality in light of scripture, when we bring the whole philosophy of form and finality up into the light of faith, we learn that the world of form and finality is much more than Aristotle or any philosopher as such could realize. We learn that the deepest and ultimate purposes, we learn the deepest and ultimate purposes of all things. We learn of the supernatural order in which all things are existentially situated and that all along it was God's purpose to sum up all things in Christ. God created all things for Christ so that Christ, the great high priest over the house of God, might return all things, all of humanity and all of nature, to the Father, in the Spirit, in the perfect sacrifice of pure worship. And God created human beings not only to be behaviorally well-moderated participants in the life of the city, nor to withdraw into philosophical communes for philosophical contemplation, but for a higher end, which exceeds all our natural powers and superabundantly fulfills our natural desire to understand. But this can only come to us as a gratuitous gift of grace. God created us for eternal life, and eternal life is knowing you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He created us for a supernatural contemplative love union with himself in the mystical body of Christ. And in this union with him, lived out in the mystical body of Christ, we are to join Christ according to the grace given to each in the same priestly act of returning ourselves and all things back to the Father in the Spirit, all in order to enjoy the Holy Trinity forever in the eternal Sabbath of the new world to come. This is the plan hidden before the ages, which has now been made known to us in Christ, that we live in a world unfolding according to divine wisdom and love 
exercising a particular and personal work for the salvation of all. And the purpose of all things is communion with the Holy Trinity in which we know and love and praise the glory of God forever. Now the tragedy of early modern philosophy, as the Thomist story goes, is that it rejects the philosophy of form and finality and replaces it with a new world metaphor, one far less amenable to objective moral evaluation, moral agreement, biblical interpretation, and communion with the Holy Trinity. We turn now to consider an alternative philosophical picture that has come to displace and obscure the actual world of form and finality and the theological wisdom that goes with it. So we turn now to the second part, the world of power and control. In the second part, I'll lay out the metaphysical big picture that results from rejecting the world of form and finality and embracing mechanistic, reductive materialism. It is what I call the world of power and control. In the world of power and control, there's no basis in nature for shared moral evaluation or moral agreement. If there is a basis for moral judgment at all, it is either in the human subject or in a platonic realm of objective values. The world of power and control does not cohere with the divine divine revelation given in scripture, but implies a dichotomy between the world according to scripture and the world according to science, with the resulting problem of integration that we face today and to which this conference is dedicated. As Thomists commonly tell the story, the grave difficulties of our present situation begin with William of Ockham, who's the founder of a philosophical position called nominalism. Now, Thomists will admit often that this is an oversimplified story, that you can't sort of blame all the problems of the world on just on William of Ockham. Okay? <laughs> but there are authors and theologians outside the school of St. Thomas who tell a very similar story that coincides in important ways. So Michael Gillespie in The Theological Origins of Modernity also sees Ockham as one of the principal sources or fonts of modernity of the situation we're in. Occam was a logician who wrestled with the problem of universals and a Franciscan with theological concerns. He thought the metaphysics of form and finality compromised the sovereignty of God over creation and the criterion of goodness based in nature entailed an undue limitation on the sovereignty of God, particularly in moral matters. If God commands things because they are good, and forbids them because they are evil, and if what makes things to be good or evil is their intrinsic natures and purposes, then God is subject to willing things in accordance with the natures and purposes of creatures. And that seems to compromise the sovereignty of the divine will. So Occam denies that things have intrinsic formal and final causes and affirms that moral actions are good or evil just because God commands or forbids them. What results is the metaphysical picture of a world of particulars, including individual human beings, without intrinsic natures or purposes, each of which is subject to God's sovereign but extrinsic direction. In Occam's world, efficient causation no longer consists of agents acting according to the inclinations of their nature, for there are no natures, in order to bring about specific ends proper to their kinds, for there are no ends as well. Rather, causation is the application of power 
from outside a thing in order to make it one way or another. And we have the beginnings here of conceiving causality as sheer force. We might say conceiving causality as violence, except that in the world of things without forms or final causes, it's difficult to say which applications of power are violent and which are not. For on the Aristotelian understanding of things, violence is power applied extrinsically contrary to a thing's nature. And in Occam's world, there are no natures or ends by which to distinguish those applications, applications of power which fulfill a thing's nature and those which violate it. What is more, in the nominalist world of particulars without forms or finality, there's no longer even a basis in the natures of things for evaluating when they are good or bad. For the natural basis of such evaluation is the degree to which a thing realizes the end of things of its form or kind. But in a world without natures, the basis of evaluation must be elsewhere. For Occam, that basis is in God. Things are good to the extent that they realize the will of God and bad to the extent they don't, or we should say maybe conform to the will of God. And the will of God is understood as power applied to particulars from without. Likewise, with human actions, an action is good if and only if it is commanded by God and bad if and only if it is prohibited by God. The nominalist account of things delivers a picture in which it is difficult to tell the difference between causality and violence, and it is a world in which God is the cause of all in that problematic sense of cause. Thanks to the widespread influence of nominalism, a new world metaphor came to be received. The world is a machine. The natural and social sciences, as we know them today, developed from the beginning as the project of developing increasingly more nuanced mechanistic models of things. And such mechanistic thinking focused on the quantifiable and experimentally controllable properties of things and aimed at explaining all things without reference to form or finality and exclusively in terms of efficient causality construed as force and material causality construed as fundamental bodies such as atoms or corpuscles. It is important to note that several early modern pioneers of science such as Rene Descartes stated that they were not denying the reality of final and formal causality. That is an important point to make. They're not denying the reality of it, but they're methodologically disregarding it for the sake of a new and more mathematical form of inquiry into nature. But what began as methodological disregard of form and finality inside the laboratory gradually developed beyond the laboratory into a principled denial of form and finality and the variety of naturalistic reductionistic programs that function as the hermeneutics for science. Naturalistic reductionism of any one of a number of varieties, atomistic, Marxist, Freudian, whatever it may be, is a metaphysical account of reality or human beings that takes models of nature developed within a methodologically naturalistic set of parameters inside the laboratory and blows them up into metaphysical accounts that go far beyond what the scientific models themselves warrant. Given the pervasiveness of such naturalistic reductionism, people commonly think 
for example, the periodic table of elements just means that atoms are what is really real and bottom-up causality accounts for all things in the physical world. Or another example, the evolutionary account of the development of species just means that all things are by chance rather than by a higher mind, even in outer space where natural selection has no role. It all just evolved. And the variety of chemical, psychological, and social factors that condition every human being just means that human beings do not have free will. But the naturalistic universe has an implication for ethical evaluation worth discussing with some care. The naturalistic universe, without form or finality, is the metaphysical background assumption of David Hume's account of the naturalistic fallacy and the fact-value dichotomy. To say that from what is the case, one can never derive what ought to be the case, that's easy to motivate with superficial examples. From the fact that a house is red, it does not follow that it ought to be red. Or from the fact that a city is polluted, it does not follow that it ought to be. Similar examples abound. Since humans thinking through the issue of moral evaluation within an understanding of nature in which things are without form or finality, or at least David Hume can't see those forms and final causes, the naturalistic fallacy seems hard to oppose. Facts, so it seems, are one thing, and values are another. But any hard dichotomy between a domain of facts and values presupposes that we do not live in a world of form and finality, but in a world of particulars, blown about by forces without any essential aim one way or the other. The domain of facts and the domain of values are two separate and unrelated domains if and only if we live in a world without form or finality. In such a world without form and finality, what is the basis of moral evaluation and judgment? If the values are not written into the factual state of correlation between forms and final causes, then whence the truth of value judgments? One view is that they're not true at all, since they are meaningless, a non-cognitivist account of ethical propositions. But such a view is humanly unlivable for us. If value statements are meaningful, what makes them true? Since the basis is not in the natures of things, it must be, either be in God, such as Occam's divine command theory, or in our appetites, such as in hedonism or utilitarianism, or in our autonomous reason by which we legislate for ourselves what is right and wrong for us to do, such as in Kantianism and its variants. Recognizing the difficulties with all these positions, one other possibility that has received recent attention is intuitionism. For all human beings have moral intuitions. Intuitionists hold that our moral intuitions track the truth in ways that are reliable enough to guide life and secure a measure of moral agreement, and they're even objectively true. What makes the intuitions to be true is not something in the domain of facts. Rather, the domain of values is platonic. And intuitions are true to this platonic domain or world of objective values that are just there. As Alistair McIntyre so poignantly diagnosed in his seminal work, After Virtue, what characterizes contemporary moral discourse 
is interminable disagreement and the sense of futility in moral discourse. Even before his Thomistic turn, before he was ready to affirm what he called Aristotle's metaphysical biology, he could see that one of the principal culprits for the malaise of moral discourse today is David Hume's mistake regarding the naturalistic fallacy and the fact-value dichotomy. And our speaker last night referred to the same topic and laid, pointed out David Hume as a particularly problematic source for our current situation. What is more disturbing, perhaps, than the ethical implications of the world in power and control are the theological implications. The world of power and control does not at all cohere with divine revelation given to us in the Bible. Indeed, it seems that the naturalistic, reductionistic world stories flying under the banner of science do not cohere well even with ordinary experience. Wilfred Sellers once famously distinguished between the manifest image of the world and the scientific image of the world. The manifest image is the world of daily life, common experience, and ordinary language. The scientific image is the world of atomic and subatomic particles, fundamental forces, and the equations that make sense of them. The two images still capture the felt sense that given the results of modern science, an educated person must either deny the reality of the manifest image altogether or interpret the manifest image in terms of the scientific one. Science holds interpretive priority over common sense. Despite appearances interpreted naively, the podium before me here is really 99.9% empty space. Science says so. It gives the enlightened and unnaive interpretation of the appearances. Now, if the scientific image and the manifest image are rivals, how much more so the scientific story of the world and the biblical story of the world? For the Bible is a story of the manifest image. And the Bible tells us the deeper meaning of the manifest image. While the scientific image either tells us another and rival meaning of the manifest image or simply denies the reality of the manifest image altogether. Between the biblical interpretation of the manifest image and the scientific interpretation of the manifest image, it seems one must choose. In the world of power and control interpreted for us by the scientific image, the human person is fundamentally unsafe. Forces without respect for our nature, move things around without purposes. And those forces, whether they be atoms moving according to laws, social facts moving according to the substructure of dialectical materialism, or libido moving according to the unresolved conflicts between id and superego, the real and deepest explanation of things and behavior is not manifest to us. What is required for safety and protection from the impersonal and hostile forces at work behind the appearances is a strategy for unmasking the manifest reasons for things given in ordinary experience in daily life. And such rational strategies for unmasking appearances in order to find secret and more sinister forces at work, we can call generally the hermeneutics of suspicion, put forth in Marx, Nietzsche, Freud, etc. The hermeneutics of suspicion are attempts to find liberation and safety from fundamentally threatening and violating forces at work in the world of power and control. 
but underlying the first appearances of things. The hermeneutics of suspicion are an attempt at self-salvation from the world of power and control. The hermeneutics of suspicion are rational strategies ill-suited for ethical reasoning and agreement, ill-suited for biblical exegesis and theology, and cannot resolve the conflict, the appearance of conflict, between the manifest and scientific image, the biblical story of the world, and the scientific story of the world. For the interminable ethical debate, the dichotomy between the biblical story and the scientific story of the world, and the hermeneutics of suspicion, are all born from the same root in the nominalist rejection of the world of form and finality, which Christians know to be the world of divine wisdom and love. So now we come to the third part, the hermeneutics of wisdom and love. What's the way forward or the way out of the world of power and control? In this third part, I sketch a way forward in the project of integrating the results of science into a theologically informed faith. So I'll make several points. First, it is possible, even today, to affirm on philosophical grounds the world of form and finality and affirm the findings of contemporary science, to do both. In the middle of the 20th century, a group of American Thomistic philosophers made it their project to show that the perennial philosophy of nature and modern science are one harmonious account of reality. Sometimes called river forest Thomists, after the name of the school where they studied, these Thomists had a straightforward position. The timeless principles of nature and change, first elaborated by Aristotle, are extremely general and absolutely necessary truths while the findings of contemporary science are extremely specific and are either hypothetically necessary or contingent. Both the philosophy of nature and modern science are accounts of reality. The River Forest Thomas insisted on that against certain interpretations of science or certain accounts of science which want to say it's not really getting at the real natures of things. The timeless principles of nature and change are, yeah, both the philosophy of nature and of modern science are accounts of reality, but at two different levels of analysis. For example, it is an extremely general philosophical truth that in order for something to change, it must have potentiality. It is quite specific to say that water is H2O. Regarding the latter statement, it is open to philosophical interpretation. One interpretation might go as follows. The formula H2O does, does um, tell us the essence of water. For on the Aristotelian Thomist account of things, it is, does, it is not possible for human beings, uh, excuse me, regarding the latter statement, it's open to philosophical interpretation. One interpretation is as follows. The formula H2O does not tell us the essence of water. For on the Aristotelian Thomist account of things, it's not possible for human beings to know the essence of things anything less than human. At best, we can know their properties. So the formula H2O is an account of the quantifiable electrical properties of water. The standard periodic table of the elements does not tell us the fundamental building blocks of reality. Such a statement of them is an over a metaphysical over-interpretation of the periodic table. What chemistry calls atoms 
are not necessarily what metaphysics calls atoms. In fact, we can say they're definitely not what metaphysics calls atoms. And just what the atoms of chemistry are, metaphysically speaking, is an open question with several possible answers. Once we stop metaphysically over-interpreting the scientific models of things and what the scientific findings tell us, it is possible to affirm both the philosophy of nature and the results of science and interpret the science according to the timeless principles, the timeless philosophical principles of nature. A good example of the River Forest School's accomplishment is William Wallace's book, The Modeling of Nature, The Philosophy of Nature and the Philosophy of Science in Synthesis. Following the River Forest's view, River Forest School's view, that the timeless philosophical principles of nature and change are very general and the findings of science are very detailed, Wallace offers several interpretations of modern scientific findings, ranging from atoms to human beings in light of the philosophy of nature. Here's a second point that's essential for the way out. Second, quandaries within contemporary science, particularly the debate regarding emergent properties, provide new and additional confirmation for the metaphysics of form and finality. So not only is Aristotle's philosophy of nature not outdated, it's actually finding new confirmation in contemporary discussions. Why are an increasing number of scientists and philosophers of science coming to the view that it is not always possible to account for the properties of a whole just in terms of the properties of the parts? Why are they coming to the view that wholes have irreducible properties of their own that are inexplicable in terms of bottom-up material causal stories? Thomistic philosophers point to the rediscovery of emergent properties as evidence that what is most fundamental in things is the form of the whole, that is, its nature, its substantial form. Old-fashioned philosophy of nature and contemporary philosophy of science find this and other points of convergence. Third, the metaphysics of form and finality are better suited for purposes of ethics. If we do live in a world of form and finality, and if things are good to the extent that they realize their ends according to their kinds, and bad to the extent that they do not, then the so-called naturalistic fallacy and fact-value dichotomy are themselves quite problematic. For from the fact that X is an apple tree, does it not follow that it should bear apples? And if an apple tree does not bear apples, are we not right to say spontaneously something must be wrong with it? With all due respect to analogical differences between the meaning of the word should and wrong, the same reasoning applies to humans. If Samantha is in fact suicidal and checks into the ER, the ER nurses spontaneously conclude something's wrong with Samantha. For everyone knows, human beings should not want to kill themselves. And intending to do so is contrary to the whole point of being human. Finally, hermeneutics. Science requires interpretation. That may come as a surprising statement to hear, since science is often held up as the interpretation of all things. But in fact, science requires interpretation, and eternal wisdom is the exegete. 
Now, eternal wisdom is given to human beings in two ways, in perennial philosophy and divine revelation. Both are manifestations of eternal wisdom, but of different orders of depth and differing epistemic standing. Perennial philosophy tells of the world of form and finality. Biblical revelation tells us of the world of divine wisdom and love. The synthesis of the authentic wisdom of philosophy and the wisdom of the Bible is one wisdom, one light, by which to interpret the results of contemporary science. And this one light, formed from both timeless principles of nature and biblical revelation, with biblical revelation holding the first place, is what I call the hermeneutics of wisdom and love. What the River Forest School began has today grown into a much larger project. A new generation of Thomists, working in the same vein as the River Forest School, have launched a project called Thomistic Evolution. Thomistic Evolution is a team of Dominican friars and their associates in philosophy, theology, and the sciences who aim to show that the perennial philosophy of form and finality, the Bible as interpreted according to the tradition and teachings of the Catholic Church, and the latest evolutionary biology and natural history are three witnesses who testify harmoniously to to the one true world the world of God's creation, form and finality, divine wisdom and love, fallen in the first human beings and redeemed in Christ Jesus unto the eternal praise of his glory. The Thomistic Evolution Project has just begun, but it has attracted the attention of Christian biologists who sharply feel the Bible-science dichotomies and are disturbed by ethical dilemmas posed by research in an academia without a shared basis for moral evaluation and who know neither the roots nor the remedies of these dichotomies. What they find in the Thomistic Evolution Project is a way to integrate the contemporary findings of science into a theologically informed faith. It all begins by rediscovering the world of form and finality, divine wisdom and love, and reading everything especially the scientific image in God's light. Thank you.